And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The last thing we saw was Moses had showed up in the land of, Israel, or land of Egypt, rather, spoken to the children of Israel, told them, God's going to lead us out. They were all excited about that. They go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is thoroughly unimpressed. And he says, no, and not only that, you can now start making bricks without the straw that we provide. He effectively doubled the workload of the people, and they were beaten for it when they were not able to meet their quotas, which was, of course, the idea. And the people turned on Moses and said, why did you come here just to make things worse for us? It was bad, but it wasn't this bad until you got here. And Moses called out to the Lord and was concerned. And all God did, remember, was remind him of what he had told him to do. And then Moses came back at the end of chapter 6 and, and said, They're not going to listen to me, Lord. And at the beginning of chapter 7, God again reaffirms what he's going to say, what he's going to do. This is repetitive for us to read, but it's important because God, God is calling it before it happens. God is telling Moses what is going to happen even though nothing looks possible. And he's saying it the same way every time, which is a great reminder for us that God is not shaken or intimidated by changing circumstances. And Moses is doubtful, but God reassures him. And again, he lays out the plan that he's executing in the land of Egypt. Nothing God has not foreseen has happened so far. And God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him to let the people go. And he tells him, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. God already told Moses Pharaoh wasn't going to listen, but Moses maybe got his hopes up and, and had them dashed. But God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This trips us up, perhaps, but it's important to know Pharaoh's heart was plenty hard already. He had enslaved an entire nation of people, so it's not as though God was turning him from a nice guy into a bad guy here. But he says, why? He says, I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, these great acts of judgment, and I will lead my people out of slavery. And in verse 5, we see the purpose of all this. Obviously, yes, God is trying to bring his people out and bring them to the promised land. But he says that they may know that I am the Lord. That phrase, I am, that was so significant at the burning bush. The Lord's like, I'm not just telling you this, Moses. Everybody's going to know. My people, Egypt, and anybody else who hears about this. Which is really the key purpose of the book of Exodus. It began in the book of Genesis. It comes to fruition in the book of Exodus. Because in the beginning of our Bible, it wasn't that long ago that we were there, the whole world knew of the Lord. Of course, Adam and Eve would have known the Lord, but even their children, even wicked Cain, could speak to God and argue with God and disobey God, but they all knew who the Lord was. 
They began to call on his name at a certain point. And, and Noah knew God, and he taught the fear of the Lord to his children. But over time, we read this through Genesis, things got worse and worse and worse. First, it culminated in the, the Nephilim and that whole episode, and then the flood. And then it came to the Tower of Babel, and God had to scatter them over all the world. The people of the world rejected God in their sin, and they forgot God. We read this not long ago in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. I'll, I'll read it because it's very relevant to what we're talking about today. Paul, talking about the people of the world who are wicked and have walked away from the Lord, it says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is exactly what had happened, and we're seeing it not only in our world, but here in the book of Exodus as well. These people who should have known the Lord, they had every cultural heritage to know God, had rejected Him in favor of their own idols, their own self-worship, really. It was the lust of their flesh. God's reality pushed them towards righteousness, and they didn't want it. So instead, they chose to worship idols. And it says, God says, fine, go worship those idols. And it brought about all these shameful things. They rejected God. It says they knew him, but they did not honor him, and their hearts were darkened. So the knowledge of God, which should have filled the whole world, had been lost. And in the book of Genesis, when God chose Abraham, it was the beginning of God's attempt to make himself known again. At that point, Abraham was not worshiping the Lord. Abraham was worshiping the moon, as far as we can tell. But God stepped in and said, I'm the real God, and I'm picking you to be my guy. And we saw this throughout the book of Genesis. It went from, from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, and then it passed on to Jacob and his 12 sons and their children, about 70 people, and that left us in the, in the land of Egypt. Well, 400 years have gone by, and now they're not just a family. They are a nation of people. And God is beginning to assert his rights over the earth. God is saying, this world is mine. I made it. Y'all have forgotten me. But the real king is about to show himself. And that's the book of Exodus. You ever wonder, why did God do this whole crazy 10 plagues book of Exodus thing? Because God is not just freeing his people. God is making a statement in the book of Exodus. He set the stage. He's allowed his people to become enslaved. And there were other reasons for that too. But this is what God is saying here. I have let everything come right where I want it. Where now they are enslaved. They're beaten down by the mightiest nation on earth with its sophisticated theology and pantheon of gods. And the Lord says, and I'm going to confirm Pharaoh in that wickedness long enough for me to tell a story that will never be forgotten. This is what God is doing. Every, even people that don't know God and hate the church and don't read their Bibles, oh, they love the story of Exodus. They love the movie, The Ten Commandments and the Prince of Egypt. It's so fascinating. That's a wonderful story. Exactly. God is saying, I'm going to do something that nobody will ever forget. Y'all are not going to forget me anymore. 
at least not by his people Israel. And we're still telling the story today, so it clearly worked. So while everything looks so bleak right now, God goes, Moses, this is exactly how it was going to go. Because we're about to step up and we're going to declare war on this world that has forgotten me and rejected me and chosen to rule itself. And it says that Aaron and Moses had doubts, but they had faith too. And even though they were 80 and 83 years old, they stepped up. So let's read verse 8 through 13. You get the picture here. God is about to assert his reality, first of all, but also his authority. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. I had somebody tell me that once when I was evangelizing. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the first skirmish, you might say. They go before Pharaoh again, and apparently doesn't narrate it, but... Pharaoh said, How, you, you come from God? How am I supposed to know you're from God? And Aaron takes his staff and throws it down, and it turns into a serpent. Now, this is a fascinating word here. Previously, when Moses turned his staff into a serpent, the word was nahash, which is the usual word for snake, right? And Moses was afraid of it and had to pick it up by the tail, remember? But this is a different word. It uses the Hebrew word tanin most of the time when this is used in the Old Testament. In fact, I think this might be the only time it's not. It is translated dragon or sea monster. Some people have suggested it might even refer to a crocodile. So you need to, all the, the movies have the little, you know, wiggly snake that, oh, everyone's so afraid. Picture this thing turning into a monster. And don't, don't think dragon like with wings and fire, but like the, the kind of snake that you'd be willing to, that thing's a monster, right? This is something horrific and terrible in Pharaoh's court. Something that is supposed to strike fear into the heart of Pharaoh saying, this is the real deal. I th find that fascinating. Isaiah 27 verse 1 has this word tanin in parallel with the word leviathan. You all know that word, right? Ezekiel 32, verse 2, God compares Pharaoh to a tanin in the midst of the Nile. He says, you're like a big sea monster lurking there in the Nile River trying to snatch people up. That's what it says it turns into. So this scene would have been rather dramatic, as you can imagine. But then here comes Pharaoh's magicians, and they take their staffs, and they throw them down, and they turn into tanin as well. Magic and sorcery were prevalent in ancient Egypt. A lot of the ancient papyri, the writings of Egypt that we've found, are magic books. In fact, if you, if you doubt me, if you go to Amazon.com and you search for books about Egypt, like nine out of every ten books is some sort of weird, occult, magical book from Egypt, accessing the spells of the Egyptians, the magic of the pharaohs that you can use today, so to speak. So we're still talking about Egyptian magic. Now you can see this, oh no, poor, poor Moses, poor Aaron. 
They're, they're being shown up. Well, no, they're not. Because it says that Aaron's snake swallowed their snakes. Have you ever watched a National Geographic or something where a snake eats another snake? It's disgusting. I've, I've mentioned this before because it was so weird, but I was watching an animal documentary with my family on cobras. And those things get big, by the way. Do you know how big those things get? It's really horrifying. But it's the, the ending big thing they were showing was one cobra chasing down another cobra and swallowing it whole. And then when it couldn't swallow it, it regurgitates the whole thing. And Catelyn says, don't show that to the kids. I'm like, well, they've already seen it right now. Too late now. Sorry, kiddos. But again, picture not just that happening once, but this thing slithering around. All the movies always have like two. I don't know why it's always two, but I bet there was a lot of them. This thing is sw going around swallowing all these other snakes and biting them in half and choking them down like the snakes do. And this would have been gross. It's not just, oh, no, like the movies always kind of pan away so that the kids don't have to see it. It tells you what, what's going on here. It's a horrific scene. So, oh, they did the same thing. Yeah, but not close. Not of the same kind. They're probably watching this go, I don't know how to do that. I've turned my snake into a, or staff into a snake before, but I've never seen it eat somebody else's staff. This is God's declaration of war. He comes into Pharaoh's court and does that. He's come to judge Egypt's people, but when we get to chapter 12, verse 12, it's going to tell us that God has come to declare judgment on Egypt's gods as well. Isn't that fascinating to think about? I'm not just judging Pharaoh here. I'm judging Pharaoh's gods. Now, as Christians, we know and have to remember that the realm of the spirit is contested ground between God and the devil. We live in the flesh, but we also, we have participation in the spirit. You know the difference between those things if you know the Lord. But you've got to know that that whole realm is contested. It's being fought over. We don't see it, but it's happening. In fact, Paul will tell us in Ephesians 6 verse 12 that your Christian life is not aimed against people. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities. Yeah, see, the government. No, no, no. <laughs> the cosmic powers over this present darkness. What does that mean? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Demons, if you want to use a common term. That that is the fight. Paul comes out and says, guys, it's not these people that you're fighting against. It's the devil and his armies. Now, there's two important truths that you have to know as you read your Bible. And the Bible teaches both of them. In one very important sense, God is God and there is no other. Idols are nothing. The Bible makes fun of idols over and over again, right? You chop down a tree, put some of it in the fire and cook your food, carve the rest of it into an idol, and you pray down and say, save me. And it talks about how stupid magic is, how astrology is ridiculous. You're, you're calling out to the stars to to tell you something about your life and try, trying to go to the fortune tellers to tell you your future, how it's a foolish thing to do. But there is another important sense where there are lesser gods, as we might say, the little g, or demons, evil spirits that are behind these things. Behind the idolatry is demonic deception. And behind the magic is the work of the enemy. 
You've got to be able to understand both of those things. He said, there, there is no other God with a capital G, but there are a lot of spirits that like to pretend and like to deceive God's people. And yes, that, that golden statue is just a golden statue. But if you bow down and pray to it and worship it, you're opening yourself up to be deceived by an evil spirit. And if you are calling on the cosmos, it's, it's, it's not like a video game where you've got like magic is sort of like, you know, your, your energy level. And I can use my energy and I can use my magic. That's not real. But there are deceiving spirits that love to play games with the souls of people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he's called the god of this world. So if you're not comfortable with me using the language of little g gods, the Bible does. There is God and there is no other, but then there are lots of pretenders. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, Paul says, What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. I'm not saying an idol is anything. I'm saying you can be having communion with demons if you engage in that stuff. Now, what is a demon? Well, a demon is a fallen angel, as we say. It is a spiritual being. You are physical. You have matter, right? You have flesh. You have blood. But there are spiritual beings that God has created. And we call them angels, generally. The word angel just means messenger, but it's a common term that we all understand. And there are some of those... Some would say a third, based on a certain passage out of Revelation, that have rebelled against God. And they are now working against the Lord and against his people in the spirit. And we call those demons. And there's a lot of very silly cartoons that have caused a lot of people to be embarrassed of the doctrine of demons and angels. Because you see it when... Donald Duck is trying to decide if he's going to hit somebody over the head. And there's a little angel Donald and a little devil Donald. And that's, well, it, it represents what's going on inside you. It's talking about my demons, right? I've got to fight my demons. And what that means is you're just having a hard time controlling yourself. The Bible very literally talks about these things. Jesus went around casting out demons. He said he had the authority to call down legions of angels from heaven. And people say things like, well, back then they didn't know about disease and psychology, and so they would, they would say it was a demon. No, that's not what the Bible says. And there are folks that will tell you that there is a very stark difference between somebody who has some kind of disorder and somebody who is afflicted by an evil spirit. I love telling the story that my father, when he was in Nepal, talking to these pastors, who uh, they, this is very common for them because those people are still worshiping idols over there. And my dad asked him, how can you tell the difference when somebody is possessed or when somebody is just sick or insane? And they all laughed and said, you'll know. You'll know when it's the real thing. So there is an important difference, and we should be careful not to attach demonic significance to somebody that's having some sort of mental struggle, for example. But that does not deny the reality of what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible says there are ranks and organizations of these ranging from what we might think of as a petty spirit who's there to, to tempt and to afflict and make the kids cry before you go to church on Wednesday night so that you don't hear a single word that comes out of the pastor's mouth, right? All the way up to what we would call little g gods of the nations. The Bible talks about angels that are lesser and greater. This seems to be a, different in the way that people are because we're all created in God's image. We're all created equal. 
But remember, there are angels like in Ezekiel whose job is to be the wheels of God's chariot. And there are circles with eyes all over the place. And some of them have four heads. And their jobs are to worship God in the temple. That there is organization and structure. And this seems to be the case with demons as well. Because very often in Ephesians and Colossians especially, it uses terms like principalities and powers and organizations and ranks. Using terms of military might. That there are ranks, there are battalions and so forth. The clearest passage of this in Daniel chapter 10. I'm only going to read two representative verses, but this is when the angel Gabriel comes to speak to Daniel. He says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, is that the human being sitting on the throne of Persia contesting this angel? No. This is the demonic prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then he says, But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So some other prince? No, this is another angel came to help me. For I was left there with the kings, plural, of Persia. And then verse 20, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So what we're seeing there is that the nation of Persia was being overseen by these demonic princes. Principality is the same word there. And these angels were fighting and they said, we're, this time we're going to overcome Persia. And after that is going to come the prince of Greece, the demonic prince of Greece. The Bible tells us that every nation, every city, every family is contested by forces of evil in an unseen battle all around you. Almost every time we see angels in the Bible, if they're not delivering messages, they're fighting. They're fighting. They're warriors. 2 Kings 6, 17, Elisha prayed that his servant might have his eyes opened and see, and he saw thousands of chariots of fire, which were angels prepared to defend Elisha. Elisha maybe saw this all the time. I don't know if I'd want to see that or not. But that's what's in your Bible. So when you see evil at work in a person's life or in a society, as a Christian, you need to be able to perceive deeper sometimes. When nations gallop after wickedness and it doesn't make any sense, why are we doing this? This is self-destructive and wicked. Why are we doing that? There could very well be a spiritual dimension to what's going on. I know people, I'm sure you do too, where it seems they could reach a point where they just break. And no longer are they even resisting the wickedness that's come over them. And you try to talk through it with them. You try to figure out what's going on and their logic is so twisted and warped and you don't even understand what they're talking about. I'm not saying they're possessed. We're not even talking about that tonight. I'm saying that they could have been deceived. That there's more to what's going on than just the physical. And if you're only going to operate in the physical, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. In this case here, God is sending Moses to speak to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is just a man, but there's something going on in the spiritual as well. And you see this manifested in the physical as these, these competing signs are coming at one another. We use that term spiritual warfare. And a lot of times we use that to describe, you know, I had a bad day and I prayed and now I feel better. That's certainly part of it. But if we want to talk about theologically, spiritual warfare is the assertion of the authority of Jesus Christ against the usurpation of Satan. Satan, the devil, the evil one, the adversary, the enemy, the Bible calls him. He calls himself the God of this world, the prince of the air. 
Jesus Christ is the one who said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And when you step out in spiritual warfare, you are pressing the claim of Jesus Christ over a person's life, over a church, over a city. That Jesus is Lord here, not the enemy. And it's not enough, by the way, just to say that. Moses himself shows up and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, come and get them. And the Lord is ready to do that. But we've got to be ready to do that too. God has sent Moses to assert his authority, not just over Pharaoh, but over these so-called gods, these evil spirits that were claiming the title of God, which was not theirs, and had set themselves up over the nations of the world, especially Egypt. They were trying to act like these petty deities that were just as real as the Lord himself. And God's about to show up and say, I'm going to show you who's king of kings and God of gods. In fact, there's a psalm, Psalm 82, which is a fascinating psalm if you read it, where the Lord is denouncing the false gods of the nations. There's a, there's a theme that runs through the Old Testament that these angels that God had set up to rule and govern his world had rebelled and were now claiming glory for themselves. And what God says at the end of that psalm in verses 6 and 7, he said, I said you are gods, little g, gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like any prince. That's just really cool trash talk from the Lord, isn't it? You are gods, but you're going to die like men. And this is what the Lord is doing here in Egypt. He's declaring war against the pantheon of Egypt, and he will show his strength over them. So they duplicated the sign, and even though Aaron's rod swallowed theirs up, Pharaoh dismisses it. But what this first scene is, God is showing up and planting the flag. This is mine, and I'm taking my people. And if you try to stop me, you're going to have to fight me. And he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You're going to see what it looks like when you try to come against me, and you'll never, ever forget this. So this is just so cool to me that after all these centuries, the knowledge of God is basically passed off the face of the earth. You get men like Melchizedek that are, are preserving this knowledge, but it's, it's Abraham, and that's it, and then Isaac, and that's it, and Jacob, and then his family, and they're enslaved. And as far as we can tell, they've more or less forgotten the Lord until God calls this guy in the desert and says, you're going to go back. And God shows up, and we're going to see in this next passage, God is going to lower the boom. I'm still here, and this world is mine. Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to listen to that, and God's going to make him. So let's look at verse 14. I'm getting fired up, and we're just getting started. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. There it is again. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. 
Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Well, this is the first plague. There's going to be ten. And the way that this is organized is in three cycles of three plagues. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then ten is the capstone here. And the first three are blood and then frogs and then gnats. And each of the three has a, a specific means by which it is done. All the first three are through Aaron's staff. The next three are going to be without any staff used. And then the final three are going to be through Moses' staff. So just so you can see how it's structured, a lot of this was probably done to help in the oral retelling of the story. It's just good to see this structure as we go through it. And also, plagues 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, they, they all begin with a pattern. The first in the cycle, so numbers 1, 4, and 7, begin with going to Pharaoh at the water, which is, of course, the Nile River. And they rebuke Pharaoh and Aaron stretches that rod over the waters of Egypt. He strikes the water and the river, the Nile River, the tributaries, the irrigation system, all the standing water. It says even vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Here's an interesting thought to ponder later. The word vessels is not there in the Hebrew. It says even in wood and stone. So that can either be vessels of wood and stone or some have speculated this is even referring to tree sap and the springs of water underneath the earth. I think it's probably more likely talking about vessels here, but that's just something to consider. It all turns to blood, which of course causes it to become undrinkable. All the fish in the river die, and they all start to stink. Turn to blood. Now some have argued that this was a rush of red silt that had a certain kind of algae in it that would have caused the color to change and caused the fish to die. I've been out in California before. There's something called the red tide, not to be confused with the crimson tide in Tuscaloosa. This is the red tide. This is a certain kind of plankton that gives off this, this red color. And you can look at pictures. At night, it glows in the dark. It's actually really beautiful. I swam in it. I don't know if I was supposed to, but I did. Um, so, I, so that I could say that I did. And so some people have speculated this was the same kind of thing. Well, that does not, first of all, explain why that would have affected all the water in vessels of wood and stone or the pools or the standing water. It also doesn't explain the, the speed with which it happened. It doesn't honor the text as written. So folks want to try to find natural explanations for these things. It's a miracle. That's the whole point. And even if it was something like this, I doubt it was, but if it was, then it was supernaturally done by the Lord in an instant. And if we're going to go that far, we might as well just use the word blood, which is there. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. Every, <laughs> those are folks that will try to say every plague is attached to one god or other, and that's a very interesting study to do. But 
I found that just about every god is tied to the Nile River somehow. Because it was the whole life of their entire civilization. They're in the middle of the desert, but there's this massive river running through it that allows them to have this flourishing society. And so all of their worship was centered around the flood of the Nile, especially their god Osiris, who was responsible, they said, for the floods of the Niles. You could see this as God stepping in and challenging him. Oh, you worship the Nile? Now the Nile's been turned to blood. What are you going to do now? You're going to pray to Osiris? You're going to call on him? There's a verse in Judges 10, 14, where the people start worshiping other gods, and they get oppressed and taken away into slavery as they do so often. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord says to them in Judges 10, 14, go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Yeah, you worship those gods. Let those gods help you. You worship the Nile. The Nile's turned to blood. Why don't you pray to the God of the Nile and see if Osiris can fix this? God, the creator of the waters, has power over the water. In fact, he's going to show a lot of power over the water later when he parts the sea. Later on, Jesus Christ is going to walk on water. He's asserting his authority here. We worship the God of the great river. And God says, I'm going to turn your river to blood. And it's going to be a curse to you. Now, again, the magicians are able to duplicate this. And the question arises, if all the water turned to blood, what water did they use to turn to blood? Uh, we see them digging wells next to the Nile. It could be that God was gracious to them and allowed them to get water that way. Or maybe it happened afterwards. It says it lasted for seven days. Maybe on the eighth day, they came and showed Pharaoh, look, we can do this too. And so Pharaoh sees, yeah, you don't have any real divine power. You're just pulling tricks like my magicians do. So no, I'm not going to listen to you. And don't let this stumble you, by the way. I want to make clear we just talked about how the Lord is Lord and there is no other, but demons are not impotent creatures. They have power that can dazzle the mind. There's a place in Jude where the, the apostle Jude rebukes us for being flippant with demonic forces. He says people that just, they walk around cursing and commanding these angels and demons. He goes, even Michael the archangel wouldn't do that. All he said was, the Lord rebuke you. He says, you, you, you're not up to that fight. This is why some folks, when they, even when they pray, they're, they're not praying. They're, they're speaking as if they had some kind of power. They're saying, I command you, devil. It's like, don't, don't try that. Don't try that. You appeal to your heavenly father who is over all of that. Remember the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? The guy was possessed and the, the Jewish exorcists have heard the name of Jesus preached by this guy. Paul's got some power. So they figured, let's try that. And in one of the most like chilling stories in the Bible, the possessed man says to them, oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And it says the demon possessed man jumped on them and beat them bloody and ripped their clothes apart. And they ran screaming and naked out of this room. There is power that the devil has. And there are people that will claim miracles and signs from other deities. And I do not dismiss those out of hand. The Bible says that Satan will perform false signs and wonders, especially in the last days in the tribulation. There will be the false prophet who deceives the whole world. When you go to somewhere like Africa or the jungles of the Amazon or India and Nepal, which is what I'm familiar with, people will tell you, that kid's cursed. That's why he's that way. 
yeah, that, that priest over there, he can make these crazy things happen. And we hear voices when we go into this room. And I get crazy dreams whenever. Like, this is real stuff, which is why, and this is just my conviction, not preaching at anybody. And my, for me, I do not go out and watch a bunch of freaky horror movies around Halloween, especially when they're related to demons and possession, because I know that there's reality behind that. And I'm a pastor and a Christian. There may be the day, and I've even been in these moments before, where I might be called to try and, and help somebody who is demon-possessed. And I don't need Hollywood's radical ideas freaking me out when I walk into that room. It's freaky enough as it is. But Satan is an imitator. Satan can only duplicate and fake what God has done. And this is the point I want to make. Just because something in the spirit has power does not mean that it's God or that it should be worshipped. If someone says, well, I've been communing with the spirit world. So are you sure it's a, it's a good spirit that you're communing with? Well, how, could it, how could it be otherwise? It's teaching me all these amazing things. And I see her face and she's so beautiful. You know what Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 8? I don't care if an angel from heaven shows up and starts preaching a different gospel. That angel is anathema too. Doesn't matter. Not every spirit is from God. You've got to know this. You've got to know this as a believer. You've got to have discernment to tell that if I'm having a spiritual experience, it does not mean it is a godly experience. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Can we just say that? Do not believe every spirit. But test them to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Muhammad had a vision of an of a angel, demon, speaking to him. Joseph Smith, same thing. False prophets. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Every testimony you've ever heard of anybody who was confronting a demonic spirit, especially one possessing a person, cannot abide the name of Jesus because they know that Jesus Christ has conquered them, right? And even with people, we do this, right? I, I always, when someone is trying to talk to me and I feel like there's something off, I like to start talking about Jesus and seeing what they say. Because a lot of times it's not what they say, it's what they're seemingly reluctant to say. If someone is reluctant to come out and say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ and then he rose from the dead on the third day and he's the, the son of God and he's coming back to get us and he's king of kings and lord of lords, you can't just say that easily. I'm suspicious. And if some angel comes to you and starts telling you, no, it's about the God within you. Say, what about Jesus? Well, you know, he was, he was, well, he was great, but what, what about, you say, uh, no, thank you. I'm going to treat you like I would treat any other traveling salesman that came to the door that had something I didn't want. You can hit the bricks. I don't care if you are a demon or an angel. Because you can see these gods, oh, they're able to, to, to make blood out of water, but they're unable to reverse God's judgment. They're not able to stop that river from being blood. And you see the people of Egypt who got everything they ever needed from the Nile River, they're now digging in the sands by the river trying to find water. They dig and 
this one fills up with blood too. We need to go out farther. I wonder how far they had to go out into the desert. It could be that as the, the Nile passed over the seven days that the, the blood washed out to the sea and, and water began to clear up over time. It doesn't say. We shouldn't let the lack of details concern us. We just don't have all the details. All we have is that Pharaoh did not listen despite seven days of bloody water in the land of Egypt. How do you think the other nations surrounding them reacted when Pharaoh sends out emissaries asking for water? Egypt needs water? We get all our water from you. Where are we supposed to get that from? Well, let's get to chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now remember this cycle, the second plague always has Moses go before Pharaoh and speak. Plague number one, in the cycle of one, two, three, is always meet Pharaoh at the water. Plague number two is go before Pharaoh and speak. And plague number three always has no warning. That's one, two, three, and then four, five, six, and seven, eight, nine, and ten is, is different. It's a capstone. And this is what happens here. He threatens a plague of frogs. And initially you think, oh, that's kind of cute, little froggies. Uh, not a plague of frogs. And that plague comes out of all the waters of Egypt. Aaron stretches out his rod over the same pools of water that he had before. And out come the frogs. Now here's an interesting idea that I'm not convinced of, but it is an interesting idea. There are those that have said the plagues follow a logical sequence. That God intervenes at certain points and then the things follow naturally. And it was all from the Lord and the timing was all from the Lord. So for example, if you turn the water to blood... Those frogs are getting out of the water and then they're going to begin to proliferate on land. And then the next plague is going to be gnats. After the frogs die, you would expect the, the dead frogs to produce more little insects and things. And that works real well up until about plague seven. And then it kind of falls apart, which makes me think that's less likely. But it is interesting to think about. And it could be that that's exactly how the Lord did it. But I'm, I'm not convinced of that. But it is something to think about and try to figure out, okay, now if this is that, and how could that work? But at the very least, the timing and the intensity here was supernatural because you see verse seven, the magicians are doing the same thing. Frogs. How do you want frogs in every nook and cranny of your house? You open up the cabinet and there's three frogs. You open up your microwave and there's frogs. You get on your car and it won't start and you open up the, the hood and there's frogs in the hood of your car. It's disgusting. It would have smelled. It was filthy. It was unsanitary. It was shameful for Pharaoh. Even in his palace, he's got frogs jumping all over him. It's not one of those, well, the poor people deal with it while the rich people kind of get away. No, everybody's got frogs. And there were two different frog gods that they had. Remember Paul talked about worshiping creeping things? 
There was one god named Hapi who was associated with frogs and the Nile. But the, the other one that was more significant was Heket. She was the mother god, the god of, of fertility and the goddess of childbirth. And in fact, the Greeks would later appropriate the goddess Hecate, and she would be the, the goddess of witchcraft, which I think is appropriate for what God is doing here. They worshipped frogs, and God says, I'll show you who's in charge of frogs. Maybe they were praying. I wonder if they were praying to their frog gods to save them from the bloody Nile River. And God goes, you want frogs? I'll get you some frogs. He's ravaging these proud Egyptians. And God is showing them the foolishness of trusting in frogs. It's foolish. It's degrading. And they, they thought it was all proud. And they, I'm sure they had great literature and music and beautiful temples to worship frogs. And gods go, it's a frog. You see this in Isaiah especially. He goes, it's a frog, you guys. No, this is our great theology, and you're not seeing the symbolism behind it. And God goes, let there be frogs. <laughs> Jeremiah 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? God's like, you're making, the whole family gets in on it, making bread to worship the queen of heaven. I think it's an interesting verse because Hecate, this goddess, would be the queen of heaven for the Greeks later on. But he says, you become like what you worship. Psalm 115 says that. To your shame, you become less human as you worship idolatrous things. If you have to bow down to a frog, you don't get to talk about your human dignity. And the magicians are able to summon frogs, but they can't get rid of them. <laughs> Can you do this? Oh, yes. Well, now you have more frogs. Thanks, magicians. This is great. Now we have double the number of frogs. Well, that's really what magic and sorcery is, isn't it? We talk about the, the deal with the devil. It never works out the way you think, right? Sorcery can cause wickedness. It can't help anybody. Now, our gods today, we say, oh, we don't have any adults. We don't worship frogs. Oh, don't we? Don't we have strange fascination with certain animals and the planet and the way that we treat it? Oh, we're all fine with, with allowing our daughters to go and abort their babies, but don't touch the spotted owls. Oh, the poor polar bears. They're, they're, they're not going to have any icebergs anymore. But these people, well, you know what? There's probably too many of us anyway. It's the same kind of thing. Our gods are more of a naturalistic sort. We believe in nothing but formulas and numbers, but that's to our shame because it's like this. Every, every attempt that we have to diagnose the world, you know what we're really good at doing is identifying problems. But we have no solutions. We can make frogs too. Great. Can you get rid of them? Look, poverty. Oh, look, climate change. Oh, look, racism. Oh, whatever it is. But we can't fix it. We've got all our plans and all our problems. We can't do anything about it. But we think because we're able to identify it in a sophisticated way, somehow it makes us godly. It's not. But when you accept the truth about the Lord, the one who made all that, and his son Jesus, not only is God able to eradicate evil, get rid of the frogs, but your life becomes better. And when you worship the Lord, it dignifies you. It doesn't degrade you like worshiping things as frogs and rats and other creeping things. 
Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Frogs are not going anywhere. Magicians are making it worse. So Pharaoh calls Moses to wave the white flag. All right, I'll let you go. Just get rid of the frogs. And Moses tells him, I loved the Hebrew here, when he says, be pleased to command me when to plead. The Hebrew there is glorify yourself over me as to when. He's saying, name the day. His whole point is, oh, you're, you're the king. You tell me when you want these things gone. There's a little sarcasm there. He says, I can get rid of these things anytime I want. You just say the word, mighty Pharaoh. And he says, tomorrow. That could also be translated by tomorrow, as in as soon as possible. And all the frogs die. Ugh. Can you imagine the cleanup of that mess? Making heaps of frogs. You've got to go through your house and find every dead frog. All the little tadpoles swimming in your bathtub. You've got to get all those out, too. And it would begin to smell. And your house, you start to think there must be another frog in here because I can still smell it. And you're crawling up in the vents trying to scrape all of them out. And you're making big piles and the land stinks in the desert sun. But Pharaoh has not relented. He was playing a shrewd game. He's trying to manipulate here. Pharaoh was, is not going back and forth between nice and angry in the story. He's trying to play the game. Get what I want. And then take it back. This is going to be the pattern going forward. And we look at Pharaoh's stubbornness and we say, that's ridiculous. But are we not the same way? Jesus said, a foolish generation asks for a sign. Do you know why? Because if you've got a wicked heart and you want to disbelieve, you can twist it any way you like. Well, the frogs had to die sometime. And they're gone now. They can't do it again because all the frogs are dead. Pharaoh is treating God like any other adversary or any other lesser God, as the world often does. Doesn't the world love to treat Jesus Christ like he's anybody else, just one among many? 2 Chronicles 32, 15, when Assyria had surrounded Jerusalem, they sent a message to the city and said, Therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of the fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? Says, Don't let your leaders cause you to trust in the Lord because every other nation has lost to me. And of course, the Lord defeated them in that instance. But this is how people think. You, you're going to treat Jesus like he's special? Those infuriating coexist stickers that lump the cross in there, right, with every other symbol, as if they're all equal. Not only is that sociologically 
irresponsible, but it's, it's, it's deliberately offensive, and we all know that. But it's a fearful mistake to relegate Jesus Christ to the same category of every other God. Who else has been crucified and risen from the dead but Jesus Christ? Whose authority has overcome every other deity? You look at where the gospel goes, and it leaves a, a wake of forgotten gods behind it. Jesus blew through the Roman Empire. No one worships those gods anymore. He blew through Egypt and Alexandria. Nobody worships those gods anymore. He blew through the Nordic countries and the, the tales of Thor and Odin. Nobody worships those gods anymore. It blew through America and all the, all the deities that were worshipped there. Nobody remembers them anymore. The only place that still has those gods are the places where the gospel is still going. What other god has done that? And whose authority can heal the body and save the soul and transform lives? People find Jesus and their lives get turned around. The world still can't explain that. Murderers and terrorists and adulterers find new life in Jesus Christ, and the world just kind of shrugs their shoulders, as if that's not incredible. Even somebody like Joseph Campbell, you ever hear of this guy? He wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he took all the world's legends and all the world's religions, and he showed how they all follow a similar pattern, and it really all goes back, he said, to one proto-religion, which he calls the monomyth. But there's a very fascinating section in there where he says, the only exceptions to this are Judaism and Christianity. And he proceeds to reprimand them for trying to corrupt the world in its monomyth. To me, that just makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. And by the way, I have read that book, and if he handles other religions the way he handles the interpretation of Scripture, I don't really have a very high regard for his abilities as a historian. God's whole purpose in Exodus was to establish his authority and his unique power. There's no one like our God. So don't you dare treat Jesus like anybody else. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, who can be for you? Your frog God? <laughs> Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Third plague in the cycle always starts cold. In this case, Aaron striking the dust. And it says in the ESV, gnats. This is the Hebrew word ken. And it's a rather nonspecific word. It can mean lice, mosquitoes, maggots, any kind of nasty, creepy little thing. And in my opinion, I'm no expert certainly, but in my opinion looking at this, it refers primarily to any kind of parasitic larval form of insect. I don't have a picture of maggots or lice for you. You can use your imagination on that one. But this is what I mean by there's, there may be something to this idea that if you've got giant nasty piles of frogs everywhere, 
you can see those things becoming infested with maggots and lice, and now they're crawling all over you. And they're in everything. The animals, your children, you could have tucked your children in at bed and it's crawling in their hair. And you can't even bathe yourself because the water's been befouled by all these nasty things. And this time the magicians are stymied. They can't do it. And they realize something real is going on here. They've been doing their tricks. They've been doing their sorceries. But they're like, Pharaoh, I really think that there's a God on their side. The ESV capitalizes the G, but it probably should be a lowercase there. The idea being, there's a God with Moses. There is somebody behind this that we can't do. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 28 when Saul goes to the witch at Endor. Do you remember that? And her job was to be a medium and speak for the dead. And she is engaged by Saul to call up the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel comes up, but she panics and she freaks out. You must be Saul. You lied to me. What's going on? Because this time it's different. She, she has her experiences and she speaks for the dead, but this time he's, there, he's right there. This tells you the qualitative difference between the work of God and the work of a demon. The presence of something far greater than anything they'd experienced had come down to Egypt and he's angry. This is why when Jesus would do miracles, it says that people would fear because they knew God was in their midst. Because sometimes when God's in your midst, there's blood and frogs and gnats. In 1 Samuel 5, I don't have time to read it, but the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle. And apparently they hadn't seen Indiana Jones and didn't know not to mess with the Ark of the Covenant. But they carry it back to the temple of Dagon, their fish god. Giant mermaid looking dude. And they place the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. Now we have two gods. What's better than one god? Two gods. Well, the next day they come in and Dagon has fallen over, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, upsy-daisy, Dagon. There you go. Set you right back up. The next day they come in and he's fallen over and his hands are broken off and his head is broken off. And then everybody in the Philistine city starts to get cancer. And plagues of rats start to flood the Philistine cities. And they pass it to another city, and it happens there too. They go to pass it to a third city, and they go, don't bring that thing in here. And they put it on a cart and just let it go so that it can go back to the land of Israel. Because our God is greater than their God. God is at war with every false God who exalts himself above the Lord. God fights for his people and fights for his glory. Satan desires the worship that God has. Satan treats God like Pharaoh did. Satan treats God like he could be beaten. And he teaches us to do the same, but it's so foolish. Read Isaiah 14, it talks about Satan's motivation. It says, I will ascend to be like the most high. But Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? So fast, if you blink, you miss it. Demons flee at the name of Jesus because he's conquered them. But here's my question. Are we even that wise to know that the name of Jesus has a power and authority that we ought to tremble at? Or do we treat the name of Jesus like a curse word to be thrown around? Don't try to manipulate or bargain with or outfox God because he is not to be trifled with. Yes, Jesus Christ is your friend who sticks closer than a brother, but Jesus Christ is also the mighty conqueror from heaven. 
the Lord of hosts, who will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. And the magicians are starting to realize that. For centuries, the world had ignored God, but God will not be ignored, then or now. And he is coming back in a way that no one is going to forget. He's come to rescue his people. Nothing's going to stand in his way. And we're still telling the story. But there is one even greater demonstration of God's saving power and his mighty authority. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God became a man. And he allowed himself to be battered and mocked by men and nailed to a cross where he hung and he died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And Colossians 2.15 says, by doing that, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is the demonic rulers and authorities. He disarmed them and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When Jesus rose out of that grave, it wasn't just your life is going to get better. It was God is saying, y'all have lost. Your greatest move in this whole battle was the son of God has come to earth. We'll kill him. But in so doing, they provided the sacrifice that would set people free and prove the end of their reign. Just like Moses, Jesus Christ came to the earth and he laid claim to it. He said, y'all going to let my people go. And now the gospel is flooding the earth. It's driving back the darkness until Jesus returns to claim that throne. We're like the conquistadores who come over and we plant the flag in the ground. I claim this land in the name of Jesus Christ. And someday he will return. So Christian, do not fear the devil. And do not minimize your Lord who has all authority and all power. But he always makes the devil look so horrifying and scary. And who can, who can stand against him? Oh, no. And it's like, he's a defeated foe. He's lost. This is where our fight takes place. We read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. All those people on TV that make you so mad, they're not your enemy. They're the people you're here to save. We wrestle against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, do you know that 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that we are weak in the flesh, but we are mighty in the spirit to tear down strongholds. Tear down a stronghold. Grabbing those rocks with your hands and pulling them down. I can't do that. But in your flesh, you can't. But we have operating in the spirit. That's where the war is fought. And Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, The gates of hell will never prevail against my church. The gates... Satan's barred the gates to keep you from getting in. He can't advance and march on you. That's why the devil tries to scare you, by the way. St. Anthony made that point. He said, demons try to scare you because they know they don't have any power over you. So they show up and they go, blah, and it makes us go, oh, no. And there's a story where he was having these nightmares and these night terrors of these demons that were scaring him. And he goes, you know what? If y'all could have hurt me, you would have done something by now. So I'm not scared of you. The gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church. So Christian, fear the Lord. Bow the knee to him. Serve him. He has authority over all things. Do not deny him the authority over your life.